Good morning. Good to see all of you. Thank you for coming back after the picnic last week. Hope you had fun at that with us. It's good to be back here, though. We are very excited to kick off this new series. It's in the book of First Peter. And uh, if you want to go ahead and start turning there, that'd be great. You won't have time when we start reading it because we're only doing two verses. But you can get there now. First uh, Peter is towards the, toward the back of your Bible. If you um, see all the T books, the Thessalonians, the Timothys, Titus, Philemon, then you'll see Hebrews and James, then you'll get to First Peter. If you get to Second Peter or the first, second, and third Johns, uh, you've gone too far. So, so go ahead and turn to First Peter. We're calling this series Different, A Letter to Exiles. And I think this is a great follow-up to our series that we just finished called Kingdom Come, which was about how we live um, our lives on this earth with a kingdom focus. Now we're going to be talk, talking and discussing what Peter, what God through Peter has to say to us about being an exile in this world. And I think it's really interesting. I, I spent some time researching the whole idea of what, an, what is somebody, what, is, what does it mean to be an exile? I knew what I had, kind of my perception. And, and I think I realized as I studied that most of our perception of um, being in exile is a very negative one. Um, I think we think of someone who's had to flee um, something or a government that is oppressive. When we think of refugees coming to our country, we th- they fit this idea of um, somebody seek, being in exile from their own country because of something oppressive where they were. We think of people who are trying to flee punishment. Many Americans who are in exile in other countries fit this bill. They are people who've done something that they are um, seeking to avoid punishment. Uh, I I thought of Edward Snowden um, instantly in this category. And then there is the idea of exile um, when you think of somebody like a leader who has been deposed from their country. Something has pushed somebody out of leadership and they flee their country and they seek exile somewhere else to avoid possibly being killed or being imprisoned or being called to pay for what are perceived or real injustices on their part. I remember very distinctly when uh, the Filipino president, um, Ferdinand Marcos, and and his wife Imelda, when they were sent, they left to the Philippines and they came here to Hawaii and lived in exile for many years. But I realized something as I was thinking about what it means to be an exile, and that is that our exile as Christ followers is very different. And over the next several weeks, as we dig into this letter, we are going to hear God's word to us as exiles. But we are not exiles who are fleeing oppression. We are not exiles who are running from punishment. We are not exiles who are attempting to avoid death. We are exiles as Christ followers of our true home, which is heaven Heaven, our true home, is where there is no oppression, where there is no death, where there is no fear. We are exiles from the perfect place to a place where, as citizens of heaven, we may actually face oppression. We may face punishment for our faith. There are places in this world where Christians right now face death for living their faith openly. It's a little bit of a turned around idea of being an exile. And it's very interesting to think about 
Will we live out our heavenly citizenship openly in the face of those very things? Or will we become, out of either a desire to fit in or fears of ridicule or persecution, will we somehow become indistinguishable from the world that we live in? Will we not just be in the world at that point, but will we find ourselves actually being of the world? The early church, when when Peter wrote this letter, the early church had sort of found themselves suddenly standing out in the world. And they faced many hardships. Many early Christians would face death as a result. And there was a temptation, and it was probably very strong, for them to become like the world around them. To abandon the vestiges of their heavenly citizenship. And Peter knew this was a strong temptation, and he knew that the pressures against their way of life, even when he wrote this letter, he knew that they would probably only get worse. And so he wrote this letter to both instruct them, but also to encourage them. And it is a strikingly modern letter for us today. I was thinking about how we can kind of get our heads around what it means today. And and I thought of this. So we are from Texas. We're from the South. Now, some of you are probably like, oh, really? Never would have known that. But we are. Stephanie, my wife, she's in here. She has a very strong accent. And accents are kind of like molecules in San Francisco, right? I mean, I love that about San Francisco. You go anywhere in this city and you're going to hear a different accent or a different language. And I love that. But curiously, I don't sense a delight when people hear a Southern accent. I don't think people from the South are the most popular people here. And Stephanie's strong accent is hard to hide. People used to make fun of her accent in Texas. But Stephanie doesn't really care what anyone thinks. She was PTA president at our kids' school for two years. And when she became president... And I knew that she was going to be speaking and she was going to be leading. I was worried. I was fearful that people might judge her for her accent. Stephanie was nonchalant. It just is who she is. Peter, my son, the longer we live here, I think the more prouder he becomes of his Texas heritage. He's been known to say, I wish I had a stronger accent. He wants to represent I tend to be sensitive about my accent, and I don't even have probably that strong an accent. But I don't want to risk being prejudged, so often I'm sensitive about it. I remember years ago, Madonna, some of you may not know who Madonna is, because I realize I'm old. She used to be a big pop star in the 80s and 90s. (laughs) But I remember years ago, she moved to England, and she came back with this sudden English-British accent. And I remember thinking how ridiculous that was and what a fraud she was. But I thought about that as we study this book. I wonder how many of us are living our lives boldly with a clear heavenly accent. Or do we mask it to avoid being prejudged? Do we hide it so that we don't have to explain ourselves or to avoid being made fun of? Or are we actually ashamed Of our heavenly accent. Have we like Madonna taken on the accent of the world around us? 
As I have read 1 Peter over and over again in anticipation of this study, and as I reflected on our past Kingdom Come study, I have been inspired personally to live with a clear, unapologetic, unashamed, heavenly accent. And it is my prayer that we as a church would live without shame or fear as exiles wherever God may send us. So let's jump in and begin in 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, we're only doing two verses today. That doesn't mean I'll have a short sermon. I can fill any void. So I... <laughs> but we only have two verses, verse one, starting in verse 1 of chapter 1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's a lot in those two verses. And I want to talk about this morning what those verses actually are telling us, because I think it's important for us as the modern day audience of this letter to understand what Peter was trying to convey to his audience at the time. And then I want to just leave you with a couple of things really just to think about as we move into this series. So the first thing is this from this passage. First thing is Peter identifies himself. And then number one, Peter greets his readers as elect exiles. Peter addresses this letter to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And his wording is important to us. It's important to, it was important to his audience. It's important to us as his audience today. He wants his audience to know that they are not just exiles, but that they are elect exiles. And Peter uses this word that has all kinds of controversy around it, but he uses it first as a descriptive of exiles for a reason. I want you just to think about, think about what it was, must have been like for the early church that Peter is writing to. So whether, and we believe he is writing to both Jewish believers or Gentile believers, no matter who, the, no matter the Christian, the, the background of the Christ followers that he is writing to, imagine what it was like for them. Their submission to Christ, their surrender to Christ would have been seen as absolutely crazy by the world in which they lived. And it could have been seen and would be seen as actually rebellious to the world in which they lived. There was no doubt for the early Christ followers that following Christ meant a complete change in the way they lived their lives. It wasn't like modern day Christianity often is where it really impacts your life in no way. This would have, they would have known that, that following Christ meant a complete change to the way they lived. They had no Christian history to look back on. They had no Christian subculture to find safety in. They had no idea really what was going to happen to them, what the world would look like for them. They didn't have this amazing revelation of God in this very neat package that we have today called the Bible. Don't you imagine that those early Christians at some point would question whether or not what they had done in following Christ was worth it? These early Christians, just like we can have a tendency to do, they may have been tempted 
to see their struggles that they were facing as a result of man, as a result of culture's rejection of them or culture's attack on them and their faith. They may have been tempted to look at their salvation as more about what they did than what God did. But Peter here makes it very clear that they and we are not here. We don't find ourselves where we are in any sort of reactionary way because of something man has done to us or something we have done to ourselves. Peter wanted these exiles to know that they were there because God chose them. And Peter will spend the rest of this book reminding them and us of the utter awesomeness of the reality of our salvation. And he starts right here with this past, this phrase, elect exiles. Peter is very aware that what they are facing and will face will not be easy. We see this. This is just a a preview through the rest of this book. In in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, you have been grieved. Listen to the words he uses. You have been grieved by various trials. He goes on to talk about the passions of the flesh. And he says, they wage war against your soul. That's in 2, verse 11. He talks about our calling to suffer for our faith in 2.21. In 3.16, he references being reviled or hated for your good behavior. I thought about our teenagers. I wonder how many times you in this room who are young and in school, how many times you face ridicule because you don't talk like your friends talk or you don't participate in the activities that are considered cool among your friends. Peter will be talking to you through the course of this letter and he's talking to you this morning. Again, in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he uses these strong words. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They cast false motives on you. They sully your reputation. And then in 4.14, he talks about being insulted for the name of Christ. It is hard to be exiles. And Peter begins this letter to the early church and to us by saying, essentially, this God chose you. You are not suffering for suffering's sake. And no one causes suffering in your life. No one who causes suffering in your life is in control of your life. He gives this beautiful God-centered greeting. And a God-centered explanation. He opens this letter with an amazing, intimate reminder. Everything you face, everything, Peter says, that we are about to talk about, it is all rooted in the sovereignty of God. And it is purposeful. God chose you. You are his elect. I'm reading the book of John right now in my private quiet time. And on Wednesday, I was actually ready to start writing my sermon. I put pen to paper. And on that morning, I was reading in John. I was in John 15. And in that section, Jesus is telling us how he's changed our status from one of servant to one of friends of Jesus. And then he reminds us in verse 16, he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Then a few verses later, he reminds them of the very reality of being an exile in the world. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is something incredibly powerful about being chosen, about this whole idea. I was one of those kids who was never chosen for an athletic event voluntarily. If I was chosen, it was because the teacher said everybody has to be on a team. It was the everybody gets a trophy thing of the 80s. But if kids were just getting together on their own and pulling in other kids, I was never included. And I remember as a kid being at my house and kids my age would come to my house to ask my little brother to come outside. And I remember watching them. Peter reminds us that Jesus chose us and he will remind us of this over and over in the letter. God chose us unto himself, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And not because, like my little brother, not because he's really talented or really good, because we're really good at something, or because we're any, somehow better than anybody else, but because he loves us and he wants relationship with us. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter reminds us that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wishes for all to come to repentance. And this whole idea can be complicated for us to grasp. And sometimes we can get bogged down in it. But I just, I just encourage you to go back to Isaiah and to remember that God's ways are not our ways. We do not have to understand it all and figure it out. God is calling us to look at ourselves and to revel in the reality that he chose us, that he called us, and that we've responded to him. We as repentant Christians, we are odd, or we should be. We are, as this series is entitled, different. We stand out in this world because we no longer belong here. And we do it because he chose us. And when we submitted and surrendered to his call, he made us his children. And we now bear his identity. Our staff is memorizing Romans 8. It's a powerful chapter, and it it reminds us that God foreknew us, and he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And it says, the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But then it goes on to say, fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We've been chosen. We are children and heirs of God. Our citizenship has changed. We have friends in Texas who just adopted two teenage boys from the Ukraine to add to their family that already had three kids. They went to the Ukraine. They had a hearing. They went immediately to the American embassy and received two passports showing those two boys as now having American citizenship. That's what happens when we enter into that relationship with God. When we respond in submission and surrender to his call in our lives, our citizenship changes. And it may be a hard change, but it is not without meaning and it is not without purpose. Number two in this passage, Peter identifies his readers as dispersed. So he goes on to identify his readers as Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You may have heard of this term diaspora. 
It, it originally had a term that was related to, the, to God's people, to, to the Jewish people being, being uh, moved out of um, their homeland. More and more now, it just, it's used to describe our global culture, the movement of large groups of people with a similar heritage or a similar ho- ho- homeland to different places all over the world. You may be familiar with the version of this verse that uses the word scattered. So what we know from the whole rest of this book is that Peter, Peter was the apostle to the Jews, but he is not just writing this letter to Jewish Christians. He is writing this letter to Jewish Christians who actually probably were dispersed out of their native land. And he's also writing it to Gentile Christians who may actually still be living physically in their native land. And what he is saying in this intro is no matter whether you have been dispersed physically out of your native land or you're physically living in your native land, all of you who know Christ are now spiritual exiles. And each of us in this room who know him are in his audience. Even if you have lived in San Francisco your whole life, you are an exile here. Every one of us is. As Christ followers, we have all been dispersed. We are all living in a place that is not our home. Number three, Peter reminds his readers of the miracle of their salvation. I love this picture he gives. So he says here to the elect exiles, and then he, then he kind of characterizes them by where they are. And then he says this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What Peter is doing in those, those four characterizations is he is tying that back to the idea of being elect, the idea of being saved, the idea of being in relationship with God. He is describing the miraculous event of their salvation. The whole idea of God's foreknowledge, again, highlights this idea of being chosen. He didn't have some crystal ball that just allowed him to see what would happen. But Christ and his redemptive work and his people have been known to him since for all of eternity. And when it says his people, when we think about his people, it's not just Israel. Sometimes we think about that in our biblical context of Israel being God's chosen people. But this goes before Israel. And what it means is that his people encompass something much broader. It involves everyone in this room who knows him. It involves everyone who will know him as we carry out our mission to share him with the world. Peter not only mentions the foreknowledge of God in our salvation experience, but then he goes on to mention the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in our salvation. So I think sometimes we understand and we think often about the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of sanctification in our lives, the the fact that we are all on a journey of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ, being made um, holy and set apart in an ongoing way. But right here... Uh, because Peter will talk about that a lot in First Peter, but right here he's likely very, what he's talking about there is the miraculous and instantaneous cleansing or sanctification that takes place at the moment we surrender to Jesus. That is what is then symbolized when we undertake believer's baptism. 
There's a cleansing and a purification that happens when the Holy Spirit enters a new believer instantaneously and sanctifies him for eternity. Again, we are going to be talking a lot about the ongoing work of sanctification. But here, Peter is reminding them of the miracle of their salvation, foreknown to God, instantly redefined as clean and righteous by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he mentions for obedience to Jesus Christ. Again, this is tied to our initial submission. Yes, we are called to obey Christ with our whole lives. But in our initial submission, and and I hope we all realize that when we become a Christ follower, that's what it is. It is a submission of our lives to Christ. It is a full surrender of who we are. And what Peter is saying here is in that initial step of obedience, there's this amazing thing that happens. He goes on in verse 22 of chapter 1, and he sort of ties up God's foreknowledge and the Holy Spirit's sanctification with our obedience. And he says that comes together to create the reality of being born again. And then in verse 25, he kind of ties this. He says the whole picture of God's plan and his son and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and our obedience, all of that is the essence of the good news. That is the gospel. And then he says we are sprinkled with his blood. This, this symbolism um, that goes back to... to God's people at Mount Sinai, when, when he entered into the old covenant with them, what, what he's saying here is you are sprinkled with his blood, which means you are marked as his. And you are therefore eternally secure in relationship with him as part of his new covenant. Not in the law, but a new covenant made with us through Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder when you think of yourself as a Christian... Do you think of all that? Sometimes we forget, don't we? Of the magnitude of what it means that we've been saved. I fear that we cheapen it. We make it something sort of mechanical or something sort of traditional or something self-serving. But if you sit here in relationship with God today, you are foreknown by him from the beginning of time. Your sin was covered. You were cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in your obedience to surrender to Christ, you were sprinkled with the blood of Christ, sealed in God's new covenant. It changes the way we look at ourselves and our relationship with God and our relationship with the world. And it changes the way we see our connection with heaven. Our hope it does. So, I want to encourage you as we begin this series. Peter, God, through Peter, is going to encourage and challenges us for the future. I believe that we are promised to face in some way as exiles in this world. So, I have three questions for you to think about as we head into this series. Number one, who are you? Who are you? Are you able to face yourself to face your family, to face your friends and say, I am not of this world. I am a citizen of heaven. I have been cleansed and purified. I have submitted myself to Christ in obedience and for a lifetime of obedience. Is that you? 
I think my greatest burden as a pastor is that we don't ask this question enough. We have lost people living under a false sense of security. Is this you? If it's not you, but you want it to be, or if it's not you, and I know there are people who fit this category in this room, it is not you, but you know that God is drawing you to himself. And for whatever reason, you are fearful of surrender. I pray you will talk to someone, talk to one of us. We want to help you because this is the most important thing we do in this body. Number two, are you living your life with a distinctive Christian accent? So if you answered yes, this is me to number one, or maybe this question will even help you answer number one. But does the way you live your life reflect the distinctiveness of your heavenly citizenship? And this does, yes, it means our morality, but it really means more than our morality. It means our whole lifestyle, the things you care about, the way you work, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the causes you support. Really, it's the whole Kingdom Come series that we just finished. The truth is that if we're going to live our life with a distinctive heavenly accent... We need to understand that there will be times when the culture moves toward acceptance and celebration of things that are not right for us as Christians, that do not fit within the perfect boundaries and wisdom of God's word. And we have to figure out how do I live with a heavenly accent regarding things like sexuality, things like gender, things like marriage, things like abortion, things like materialism. Things like drugs and alcohol and and many, many other things. Sometimes, though, the world is for or against things that we should be, as Christ followers, also for or against. We're not always in conflict in ideology with the world. I think about things like racism and care for the poor, protection for the marginalized, care for orphans. But sometimes living with the heavenly accent impacts how we deal and engage those things. Many times in the last year, especially, we've had to have conversations with our kids. They ask questions and we explain, yes, we agree with certain general ideals of various popular causes, various popular groups, various people. But we cannot participate with that particular group or that particular cause or that particular person because that one goes beyond what we believe as Christians and it moves into areas that we as Christians cannot support. It's challenging for us. And Peter is going to challenge us about how we respond and how we engage in culture. And I encourage you to start looking at your life. Look at the accent with which you live. And number three, have you been assimilated into a culture that is not yours as a Christ follower? We, sh- we understand that idea in a melting pot city like San Francisco. You come from places and you can get sucked into where you no longer bear any identity, any identifying characteristics of where you came from. That's what assimilated means. Are you hiding who you are as a Christ follower and living secretly? Or have you fully abandoned who you are as a Christ follower in order to fit in? Or maybe 
Maybe it's not in order to fit in, but maybe you've abandoned it because you've truly been taken in. Are you like Madonna? Over time, adopting an accent that is not yours. We will have a lot of time in the next few weeks to dig into this more. This letter, this book of 1 Peter, it's important because we do live in an age of increasing hostility to the Christian way of life. I promise you that it is harder to live as a Christian in San Francisco than it was to live as a Christian in Texas. We can be, and, and San Francisco sets the course. I think it can be very easy as a Christian to be tempted to withdraw from culture into some sort of Christian enclave or just to ignore our faith in order to fit in. But we cannot do that. Withdrawing into a Christian enclave or ignoring our faith, neither of those are options for us as Christ followers because we have a calling on our lives to be God's ambassadors in this culture. Ambassadors of heaven, ambassadors of reconciliation. We are called to share with this world that they can be reconciled to God. And in order to carry out our calling, we cannot withdraw from culture. It means that we must engage culture, but we engage it with integrity and with grace and with perseverance. And we engage it as joyful, happy, confident outsiders. I know that you guys face things now. I just talked with a guy this morning, but I hear from so often, you may not face persecution, but I know you face pressure. I can't tell you how many people have told me that, that you feel compelled to hide your faith, to protect your job or to protect your job prospects or to protect your social connections or to not feel weird at school or to protect your relationship with a teacher. My kids have told me, I, I don't want to speak out because I'm afraid of what it might mean for me and my teacher and my grade and my friends. I'm reading a fascinating book right now. It's called The Benedict Option. It's a book for Christians about living in a post-Christian nation, specifically for us in America, living in a post-Christian America. I can't fully recommend the book yet because I'm not finished with it, but Stephanie and I are both reading it, and we have found it very insightful and interesting. And I was struck by this comment. Listen to these words. In the days to come, circumstances will compel Christians, particularly those in certain professions, to rethink our relationship to work. This is going to cost us money and prestige and perhaps vocational satisfaction. The closure of certain professions to faithful Orthodox Christians will be difficult to accept. In fact, it's hard for contemporary believers to imagine in part because as Americans, we are unaccustomed to accepting limits on our ambitions. Many of us are not prepared to suffer deprivation for our faith. So my question is, are you ready? Because I think and I believe that Peter, God through Peter in this letter is going to do his part to prepare us. And I can tell you that Ryan and I are both praying for God to equip us to do our part as we teach through this letter. And we are praying for the Holy Spirit to do his part. Will you open yourself to joining us in that prayer that God would soften your heart to hear from him in this series? 
that you would allow God to come into your heart and to remind you of who you really are and where you are really from. And maybe, if needed, for you to realign yourself with who you really are. My prayer through this series, and I just had this strong sense this week, is really that we as a body, you individually, but we as a collective group, that we would see the beauty of our heavenly accent. And that we collectively would not fear it and we would not hide it, but that we would speak it with great joy. And that in doing that, we will face whatever we may face with the living hope of the risen Christ. I believe that this letter is very much, at the end of the day, a letter of hope. It is a hope that is based in the gospel. It is based in our relationship with Christ. And it is a hope that is anchored in our homeland. One commentator said this, This is a book about the life of a Christ follower as a journey home. As Peter closed his greeting, so I close the sermon. May grace and peace be multiplied to you on this journey.